All right, good morning, church. If you would go ahead and open your Bible, we're going to study God's Word. Open it to 2 Samuel chapter 13. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. So glad that you're here worshiping God with us today and looking at His Word together. I'll just give you a heads up. Uh, this is an unusual message. This is an unusual Sunday. It's a really important Sunday for us as a church. Uh, because we have been in what is called the Caring Well Initiative. As a church for the last two years, something called the Caring Well Initiative. It's involved a number of churches around the United States. And the desire is that the church would become, our church would become, safe from abuse and safe for survivors of abuse. And there have been a number of things that have been happening these last two years. So we have um, we've brought in people, experts, to, to give instruction and wisdom to our elder council. We've had elder council training retreats. We've had our whole staff uh, experience training in some of these areas. Uh, we have formed a Caring Well advisory team and went to a conference to get equipped, came back and have been doing work month after month on our policies and how we are as a church engaged in these areas. So that's been a lot of effort that's going on uh, these past couple of years, but the desire all along has been that there would be a Sunday where we could set apart and just say, can we help our whole church gain awareness of, of the deep issues involved here? And so that's why if you're in 2 Samuel chapter 13, you can see, obviously, this is a sermon with a warning label. This is a, a very sensitive topic. That's why we gave a heads up to parents so that you could consider whether your child is able to handle uh, and process some of the things we're talking about today because we're talking about, as you can see there in your passage, sexual abuse, sexual assault. And it's not just something that happens to the female gender. It happens to, to men, to boys as well. The, the statistic is this. At least one in four women and one in six men. Get that. One in four women, one in six men are or will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime. So, so I come to this moment aware of the need for sensitivity, knowing that there will be words that are used, phrases and concepts and principles that are discussed that will be very sensitive places for people, even in this room. At the same time, having to navigate the fact that as a church, if we want to care well, we have to look at uncomfortable passages like 2 Samuel 13, with our eyes wide open so that we can be better as a church. The church isn't always getting these things right. We'll talk about that as we move along. But my, my desire and aim for this morning, there's so many things I wish we could get done in just one Sunday. It's going to take a lot more. This is the hopes of catalyzing good work that's going to happen all throughout our church body. So my aim for this morning is more modest. It's just two things. Number one, to show us that God's word addresses every area of life, even the hardest areas. And second, we'll do this at the end, is to give and offer some good resources to our entire faith family so that we can learn, so that we can listen well, so that we can enter into these spaces in a well-informed way and be a part of, um, of a blessing for our church. So, We'll share more resources at the end, but I just want to commend this one to you. This is one that we've given to all of our elders. We've given it to all of our small group leaders. Um, it's called Caring for Survivors of Sexual Abuse by Chivijan and Holcomb. Uh, it's short, so you can read it in a day, but it just offers wonderfully 
helpful insight. Biblical, so informed by scripture, but also aware of the realities of trauma and what people experience in these places. So it's just a great resource. I would commend it to all of you. All right, Psalm, uh, rather, 2 Samuel 13. Um, some stories in the Bible should make us weep, and this is one of them. Some stories in the Bible should awaken the impulses of justice and compassion, and this is one of them. So I hope that's what happens as we look at this. 2 Samuel 13. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, so that's back to the palace where Tamar is, saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down, and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. And here's why I chose the English Standard Version for this particular message, verse 13. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman 
in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. Let's pray. Lord, be with us as we think about hard things this morning. Pray that you would come near with grace. Pray that you would bring wisdom from your word. Pray that you would soften us, make us a, a tender-hearted people, awaken with a, within us the, the gospel impulses of compassion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story unfolds in three stages, and the first is betrayal. Betrayal. So there's a betrayal of trust. All around this passage, there's a betrayal of trust, right? So Amnon and Tamar are step-siblings. They don't have the same mom, but they have the same dad. Their dad is King David. And at this point, she has lived her whole life in the royal palace. That's where you find her in the text. She's living with her dad, King David, and Amnon is down the street. He is, he's in his own place at this point. And we come into the passage, and we find out that Ammon, Amnon notices something about her, and he says there, there is this beauty that makes him obsessed, that makes him infatuated. It's a, he calls it love. He's going to use the word love, but the text is really using love in air quotes because we're going to see momentarily that his love is really not love. He doesn't love her. He loves himself. And what's going on with Amnon is he thinks loving her and conquering her are, are two sides of the same coin. He has a distorted definition of love. And he has a friend named Jonadab who is crafty. He's a crafty man. And Jonadab says, I can figure out a way to get her close to you so that you can assault her is what takes place, right? You're reading the story, we're reading the story, and we know what's coming together, right? We see it happening from above. She doesn't see what's happening, so there's this betrayal of trust. She shouldn't feel unsafe coming into this house. There's no reason she should feel like she should have her alarm up or be extra vigilant about this. She's coming, and she's got stuff so she can bake something. She's not coming in Vigilant, she's coming in to serve her brother who's sick. She trusts her dad, and her dad said, go. Her dad trusts Amnon. Amnon said, send Tamar. So on all sides, there's a betrayal of trust. Amnon is manipulating David's trust. Amnon, this is kind of a principle. You can think about it this way. Amnon, with some help, manipulates circumstances to create an advantage. And that is so often what happens in abuse. Predators manipulate circumstances to create an advantage for themselves. It, he's not only manipulating David's trust, he's manipulating Tamar's trust. So Tamar goes because her father asked her to care for Amnon. Just think about this, because after he says for her to leave, she says, no, this is a greater sin than what you already did, and he calls in one of the servants. So he has servants at his beck and call. He has people who can make him stuff when he doesn't feel good. He has medics. The royal family had people to take care of them if they were laid up and if they were sick. So why is she got to come? Why does a daughter of the king have to come in? And she comes in, by the way, in her royal garments. It says she comes in dressed like the, the daughters of the king. You could have been would have been able to spot her in a crowd. Nobody wears those garments except the daughters of the king. And that's what she's wearing. And yet she comes in and she rolls up her royal garments and she starts kneading dough. She's making him something. She's caring 
for her brother. There's a deep betrayal. It's palpable in this passage. It's so palpable that as you're reading the text, don't you wish you could kind of shout into the story and say, don't go in. You, you don't know what he's up to. Don't go in there. It's a betrayal of trust. Second, it's a violation. So the, the passage doesn't go through in lurid detail what happens. It's tasteful in its representation. It is not explicit, but we know that what happens is deeply evil and deeply wrong. Amnon has been acting weak. He's been acting ill, feigning illness because that served him up until this point. And now he sheds the act of weakness and he reaches for strength because that, this is going to serve. At this stage of his plot, weakness is not going to help him. Strength is going to help him. And that's often the case even today in situations of, for example, domestic violence. Where I've, I've been in my office with a husband and his wife in cases where we learned later on that there was domestic violence at play, where um, he was lowly, even lamb-like in the counseling room and laughing at her in the parking lot. Just seemed like, hey, I'm going with the process. Why is she so bent on unforgiveness? He's lowly in the counseling office and laughing in the parking lot. Amnon, he, he leaves the show of weakness behind. He's at the stage where weakness doesn't serve his interest, and he violates her. And again, both genders can be affected by this, this evil. This is from a resource Justin and Lindsay Holcomb have produced called Rid of My Disgrace. They write, sexual assault is any type of sexual behavior or contact where consent is not freely given or obtained and is accomplished through force, intimidation, violence, coercion, manipulation, threat, deception, or abuse of authority. So this will be the first time we kind of back out and think as a church. So just think with me for a second. How do we become a church with a culture that cultivates caring well for those who have been survivors of abuse. It, it's not just done, friends, when we learn how to listen well to the stories of victims. That's really important, but that's not sufficient in and of itself. We got to get prior to that, we got to get before that and disciple the rising generation of little boys and little girls and teach them what love means. Amnon comes into this passage and he says, I love that girl. I've got to have that girl. It's like, he doesn't know what love is. He has a deeply distorted view of love. What we want to say to kids coming up from the youngest ages here at Brook Hills is, let me teach you what love is. Sons and daughters, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not seek its own. Love is self-sacrificing. Love doesn't deceive and plot and plan to take over people who are vulnerable. It doesn't seek opportunities to take advantage. It doesn't take, it gives. That's what love is. We're discipling, we're sowing truth into their minds and into their hearts. And not only that, we become a caring world church when we live out in the light. We process the terrible things that have been happening. We process it in the light. I, I know of a church where a child was, was molested and, and what did the church do? Well, they, they battened the hatches. They closed up all the, the gates outside. An investigation with the proper authorities was not launched. They said, we'll handle this internally. So it was an 
internal operation. The pastors suddenly become detectives. Pastors suddenly become their own investigative process is launched. And, and the victims were told, hold your peace. Basically the same thing Absalom tells her. Hold your peace. Don't make a big deal of this. Don't make a fuss. We don't need to go to the papers. We don't need to go to the police. We don't need to go to the authorities. That's the last thing we need right now, right? And so it's handled internally. And not only are the victims silenced, but they're told, the reason we need you to be silenced is because you need to trust us. And so you need to submit to your church authorities. And if you don't do that, actually, you're dividing the body of Christ, right? And so, so this is how we're going to walk it out, right? And that seems to be the process and how it plays out in churches all over the country, you can see what happens is in those kinds of scenarios and in those kinds of conversations when the victims are silenced and then they're told, you need to submit to the authorities and if the victim starts to eke out their cries for help, then, then what happens is the camera shifts away from the abuse itself to the response or lack of response in the victim. The victim just seems to be in a concerning spiritual place, honestly. She's not receiving from us or if it's a... Man, he's not receiving from us right now. It seems to be locked in a pattern of unforgiveness toward the abuser, right? But we've all sinned. Everybody has sinned. So we can all give gospel grace to one another, right? So the conversations between church leaders become largely taken up with the concerning spiritual condition of the victim. Conversations which if both parties were a fly on the wall would be all too pleasing to which party? The abuser. The abuser would be happy to hear how that conversation played out because that conversation serves Amnon. Here's a reality from, from this little resource. I attended a conference years ago where hundreds of child sexual abuse prosecutors were asked about their observations of pastors who came to court in a supportive role. Sadly, over two-thirds of the audience reported that pastors appeared in court to support perpetrators, not victims. Many abuse survivors want nothing to do with Jesus because they've been marginalized by the very community they had hoped would care most, the body of Christ. Why the Caring Well Initiative? Because of quotes like that, realities like that. What's so often lost in conversations in church situations like this is so evident when we just read this text, and it's this. Tamar didn't ask for this. Tamar came ready to knead some dough and make some cake for her ailing brother. She didn't ask for a life with PTSD. She didn't ask for the nightmares, for the trauma. She didn't ask for that, right? This should have been a safe place for her. Why is this message this morning nested in a series called Who is Like Our God? Because when you ask the question, who's going to tell Tamar's story? She turns to her brother Absalom. He says, hold your peace. It's not that big of a deal. It's a family situation. We'll handle it. She turns to David. He gets mad and does nothing. David is, cat's got his tongue for the rest of the chapter. He says nothing about it, does nothing about it. So then you you ask the question, pray tell, who is going to tell Tamar's story? And the answer is, God will. Because we read it in 2 Samuel 13. God says, write that down. Put it in the book. I know it's bad PR for the royal family, for the family from whom the Messiah will come. Write it down. I'm telling Tamar's story. It's not going to be lost in memory what happened. 
God tells Tamar's story. He doesn't just tell the story. He tells us what he thinks about what happened in other places all throughout Scripture. In this narrative, he doesn't say, pause right there and say, by the way, God hates that. He doesn't do that in this narrative. But all throughout Scripture, from cover to cover, God says, tell them what I feel about oppression. I hate it. Tell them what I feel about violence against the vulnerable. I hate it. I'm on record over and over again. Here's a small sampling Proverbs 24, rescue those being taken off to death and save those stumbling towards slaughter. Notice it doesn't just simply say, pray for those being taken off to death. By all means, let's. But it says, get in there. Get in there. If you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Psalm 82, give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. What's a caring well church gonna look like if that's the God we reflect? Deliver them from evil people. Psalm nine, the Lord is a shelter for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you, for you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. What's a caring well church gonna look like if that's the God that we worship? If that's the God we are meant to reflect, then we are a shelter for the oppressed because that's what our God is like. And we want to reflect his character in the world. Where would Tamar turn? Sadly, she has nowhere to turn. So we move from betrayal to violation to isolation. And that's what happens in verse 15 through 21. Now we see Amnon's true colors in verse 15. He kicks her out. He says, away with you. And then she says, look at verse 16. No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. Her statement drips with shame. The shame is a way of convincing us that the terrible thing that was done to us is somehow my fault. So shame gets in our ear and it works us over in that way. And so she, she does what? She's driven off into the wilderness and the door is locked behind her. What a picture of what so often happens in the church driven off into the wilderness and the door is locked behind her. And then she runs to Absalom. What does he say in verse 20? Hold your peace, don't take this to heart. Our family's messed up. Don't take this to heart. Now, just back up for a second because in one sense it sounds like he's making light and he kind of is, but he also, if we keep reading, he's enraged. He hates Amnon. Amnon's gonna die for this. Uh, Not a metaphor. He's waiting for the opportune time to kill Amnon for what Amnon did to his sister Tamar. It's gonna take two years, he's gonna have to wait, and he's never gonna forget the hatred that burns for what Amnon did. So he feels very intensely about the wrong that was done to his sister, but to her, all she hears in her ears is, this isn't a big deal, sis. And you wonder, why would he use even language like that? Why would he shut her up in that way? Hold your peace, don't take this to heart. Why would he do that? Perhaps it's politically motivated. You know, um, we don't need this right now, sister. The royal family doesn't need to show up on the front page news again. Two chapters ago, dad took Bathsheba by force. We don't need this again. That was two chapters ago, right? He didn't ask. He didn't show up at the front door with roses. He sent the royal guard and said, bring her to me. It was a hostile takeover, and that just happened. So, so trust me, I'll handle some of these things, which, which by the way, David's actions two chapters ago might be part of the reason why he's so uncharacteristically quiet right now. 
Doesn't have much room to speak. And so Absalom is outraged. He's going to kill Amnon for this. And you can imagine, if, if David finds his voice after the murder of Amnon and confronts and rebukes his son Absalom, you can imagine how that might play out where Absalom could say, listen, Dad, do you not understand the gravity of what happened to my sister and your daughter? She was assaulted. She was attacked. She was taken by force. Sorry I couldn't watch the second half. Somebody had to act. It wasn't going to be you. Listen, I'm not saying my thing was the best practice that I would confer on everybody else, but I like my way of doing something better than your way of doing nothing. You can imagine that that's how Absalom might respond. He's ticked. He is in a rage. And David's just sitting there fuming. If you'll let me put it this way, David's response is the recipe of an anti-caring well church. What's that recipe look like? One, get mad but do nothing. Two, don't report it to the authorities for an investigation to begin. Three, don't just fail by not confronting Amnon. Fail by, not, by leaving Tamar in isolation. That's what happens. She is a desolate woman, verse 20 says. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Why is she spending the rest of her life in Absalom's house? We saw her leave the palace in verse 7 with food. Why doesn't her dad have the sense to say, baby, come home. Come back. I'll, I'll keep you safe. I'm so sorry for what happened. I'm so sorry for what your brother did, but you need to be back home. He leaves her in the howling wasteland. She's got to live with Absalom the rest of her days, a desolate woman. Deep tragedy. The world, in many ways, hasn't changed, has it? Because even the church still doesn't know what to do with Tamar. Especially when telling Tamar's story gives the institution, the church, the Christian nonprofit a black eye. And so, how does that end up playing out? The leaders of Christian organization sit down with the victim who has a complaint against Christian organization or things that happened under the auspices of that organization and they say, listen, we're really sorry and we're gonna be praying for you, we're gonna be here for you, ready to help, but um, this doesn't need to go outside of this room because if it does, um, it's gonna hinder the gospel. And so the, the noble intent is it's going to be a hindrance to the gospel when in reality, think about it, the story of a survivor doesn't hinder the gospel. The cover-up hinders the gospel. The circling of the wagons, the lying and deceit, the PR train that's brought out, that's what hinders the gospel. Have you seen it this past week in the Southern Baptist Convention? That's a hindrance to the gospel, not the story of the person who was afflicted and abused. And so often, why does the church or why does the organization do what it does to protect the bottom line? It's, gonna, it's not going to bring the people back. They're going to start to be suspicious of their church or suspicious of this organization's reputation. So the bottom line is going to be affected. The money in the offering plate is going to be affected, right? So it serves the bottom line. Here's what Paul said in the New Testament. He says, instead... We have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God. So how would the cover-ups 
And in its place, Paul says, but instead of that, commending ourselves before God and to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. There's a verse that will change everything. There's a verse that if implemented would have changed what happened, what we heard this past week. Private and public integrity may cost us greatly, but it's infinitely better than the alternative. Hear this, the, the gospel mission is not imperiled by the open statement of the truth. It is imperiled when the church chooses some option besides the open statement of the truth. Can I read that again? The gospel mission is not imperiled by the open statement of the truth. It is imperiled when the church chooses some option besides the open statement of the truth. So I want to conclude by looking one more time at Tamar. So she steps into this passage and she's wearing the royal garments of the daughters of the king. If you spotted her in town, you would say, she is a daughter of the king. You see verse 18? Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. Everywhere she went, her garments announced, this is royalty. She's the king's daughter. And Amnon doesn't care. Amnon violates her. And then we find her in verse 19. You see how she looks in verse 19. She's got ashes on her head. So ashes, that, that would mean that she would have reached over and found a burn pile somewhere and would have taken the leftover spent refuse. She would have put garbage in her hair. And then her royal garment, her, her royal robe, it says she's, she's torn it. It's torn to shreds. So, so now her outsides look like she feels on the inside. Her beautiful hair is covered in garbage, is covered in ashes, and the garments that bespoke her royalty are torn to shreds. The, the body language is unmistakable. She feels unredeemable. She feels utterly worthless. She feels beyond the reach of any hope. She has no value in her own eyes. We hear no more words out of her mouth. All we hear, the last thing we hear of this woman is what we hear in verse 19 where it says, she left crying aloud as she went. It's the last sound we hear out of Tamar. And the question that should break our hearts is the question that she asked pleadingly when Amnon was about to assault her. And it was this. She says, do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? The book that was written by Justin and Lindsay Holcomb and it's called Rid of My Disgrace. And it's based on another Bible version's translation of that verse where it says, how can I be rid of my disgrace? Where, as for me, where could I carry my shame if you do this thing? That is a haunting question. And if we are to be a caring well church, we better know the answer. We better embody, we better incarnate the answer. And this is where the central message of the Christian faith, the Christian gospel, comes into view, where we see that God is indeed a God who runs to Tamar. Because what happens when you keep reading through the Old Testament and you come to the prophetic books that are announcing the coming Messiah and what he's going to do when he gets here? When Jesus Christ, the Messiah, arrives, this is how you'll know this, it's him. And Isaiah 61 says this about Messiah the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And Jesus comes on the scene in the fullness of time, and he's going to preach his very first sermon. It's captured for us in Luke chapter 4. And they say, Rabbi, choose any passage you want to preach. And what does he walk over? He walks over and says, where is Isaiah? And he pulls Isaiah out, and he unfurls that scroll to chapter 61, and he reads those words, and he says, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to run to Tamar. Show me where she is. I've got a headdress in place of her ashes. That's the story of the gospel. Those who are betrayed and those who are violated and those who are isolated. And when they say, where could I carry my shame? I hope the Caring Well initiative means you and me, the Church of Brook Hills, are going to have a ready answer. And the answer is here. You'll come here. You'll carry your shame here. We'll carry it with you. We'll sit with you in the ashes no matter how long it takes. And you can share your story no matter how much you want to share the more and more you feel safe and that you can trust us, you can begin to share that and we'll walk together in friendship. That's what the church is called to be. And together, you know what we'll do? We'll look to Jesus who bore our shame in his body on the cross. We'll look to the one under the ministry of the gospel week after week. We'll look to the one who was betrayed, to the one who was violated, to the one who was isolated, who who died cast outside the city right near the garbage heap. That's where he died, and it was a metaphor. The point wasn't lost on anybody where Jesus died or the fact that he hung there naked. That wasn't lost on anybody either. And there he is hanging there so that we could be healed. There he is naked so that we could be clothed. In one sense, from the cross, from that place of nakedness, he was, as it were, weaving the royal garments for sons and daughters who would believe in him. And the moment you believe, he says, here, here, put this on. It'll cover everything. Cover all your shame. You're never going to need another robe. This is never going to go bad. You can wear this for the rest of your life, and then this will present you faultless in the presence of a holy God. That, that's our gospel. That's our Christ. Edward Shalito was a, was a man who had seen trauma. He was a minister through World War I, ministered to soldiers, people with, with deep trauma, physical wounds, but also deep wounds. And, and he used to ask the question to some of them who said, where could God be in World War I? How could a God be in heaven looking down on World War I? And he said, he would ask the question, who ever heard of a God with scars? Have you ever heard of a God with scars? And he was saying to them, the God who exists has scars. He, he knows how to finish your sentences in a very broken world. He gets it, and he wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars, and it goes like this. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. The heavens frighten us. They're too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars, we claim thy grace. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. 
but to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. This is our God. If we want to be a caring well church, this is the God whose image we get to reflect, whose, whose likeness we get to incarnate in relationships and in our fellowship together. So to become this kind of church, the kind of community that is a place of healing for those who have been afflicted and those who have been mistreated, who can experience the love of God and the the cleansing power of Jesus washing away our shame and the friendship and nearness and comfort of the Holy Spirit. You in for this? That, that's our call as a church. May he equip us.